Good morning. Wow. Good morning. Hey, can I just tell you how excited I am to be uh, at Alliance Bible Fellowship? I, uh, my wife and I have felt part of the family. Uh, Welcome Home was a great little video clip, and it ties into some of our message today, too. And, um, you know, Alliance Bible Fellowship is especially important because I want to make sure I'm always communicating clearly, and uh, communication sometimes can get a bit off, and... Uh, If this were Alliance Bible Church, there might be a question, and and let me explain to you that through just this little story. I I like to share this just as a way of uh, helping us understand communication's importance. So it says, this story deals with a rather old-fashioned lady who was planning a couple of weeks vacation in Florida. She also was quite delicate and elegant with her language. She wrote a letter to a particular campground and asked for reservations. She wanted to make sure the campground was fully equipped but didn't quite know how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. After much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term bathroom commode. But when she wrote that down, she still thought that was being too forward. So she started all over again, rewrote the entire letter, and referred to the bathroom commode simply as the B.C. Does the campground have its own B.C. is what she actually wrote. Well, the campground owner gets the letter. wasn't old-fashioned at all. He couldn't figure out what the lady was talking about. That B.C. really stumped him. After worrying about it for several days, he showed the letter to other campers, but they couldn't figure out what the lady meant either. The campground owner finally came to the conclusion, aha, the lady's religious and must be asking about the local Bible church. Some of you may be starting to get there already, so... So he sat down and wrote the following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure of informing you that the B.C. is located nine miles north of the campsite and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. Some of you had to stand in line out in the comments. You're thinking, yeah. I admit it is quite a distance away if you are in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago. And it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now there's a supper plan to raise money to buy more seats. They plan to hold a supper in the middle of the B.C. so everyone can watch and talk about this great event. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly. But it is surely not for a lack of desire on my part. As we grow older, it seems to be more and more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. (laughs) If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time you go, sit with you, and introduce you to all the other folks. This really is a very friendly community. Okay, so we want to communicate well this morning. Join me in prayer as we ask God to do that. Father, we do delight in you, and we laugh at ourselves as human beings. We struggle sometimes to speak the truth, to speak clearly. And Father, this morning, uh, we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take your word seriously. And we take you seriously. And Father, we ask that uh, everything that comes out today in, in this message would be truth, that it would be something that 
makes a difference and impact in each of my friends here lives, Father. And if anything that, uh, that I speak isn't true or isn't right, that it just, it just withers away. It's gone. And Father, that the communication would be clear so that you could be honored and glorified. We love you and we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so this morning, my favorite uh, story Jesus ever told, in fact, I think it's the greatest story Jesus ever told, occurs in Luke 15. And if you're following the context of that story, it follows two other stories about a lost sheep and then a lost coin and then in this passage, what they call a lost son. Some of you have learned this story as the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, I really like the uh, parable of the loving father. I think there's a, a, a good compelling reason why we might think about how, how lavish the father's love is. In fact, somebody told me a few months ago, someone preached on this passage and really emphasized the love of the father, and I think that's beautiful. This morning, what I want to do is take a familiar text and have you look at it through the lens of the concept of excellence. So, not just doing the right thing, but doing things right is excellence. And sometimes we do the right thing, but we don't do things right. We don't do it the right way. And so I want to have us take a look at this passage. And we're going to meet three sons in this passage. So we'll take a look here. Verse 11, Jesus continued. He's talking about these stories. There are tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law, listening. He's got this different kind of crowd. And he says, there was a man who had two sons. Oh, my goodness. I had three sons up there on that slide. I, maybe I could get that fixed before. This is embarrassing. Well, hang with me for just a minute. Maybe you'll see what I mean. Uh, Jesus says there are two sons, and he's right in what he's saying. We're going to look at it maybe with a little different eye. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So we meet son number one, who I'm going to say has ignored excellence. It's not that he was unaware of it. He was in his father's home for a period of time. We don't know his age when he left, but he had been experiencing excellence of a father and yet he ignored it. And we know about this penalty of the ignorance, so to speak, because in verse 16, this little section of Scripture says he got to basically the depth of depravity because he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, they didn't want to have any association with the pigs, let alone to be feeding them, and to desire the food of the pigs was really the depth. One of the things that I would have to say is, as I study Scripture, as I look at different uh, passages of Scripture, I know it's important for me to see what other scholars are saying about Scripture too. And that's why I really appreciate Pastor Scott as he's preaching, he's, he's giving you the, the, the wealth of what he's dug down deep in in his study. 
And one of the texts that I looked at this past week, a commentary, is an old, old commentary. I like to look at old commentaries just to see if there's been any changes in our culture in the last 20, 30, 50 years. This one's from 1892. 1892. This is what the commentator said about this younger son and how he was ignoring the excellence. It says, The younger, as the more thoughtless, weary of restraint, panting for independence, unable longer to abide the check of a father's eye, impatient of divine control, desiring to be independent of God, seeking to be his own master, that sin of sins in which all subsequent sins are included as in their germ, for they are but the unfolding of this one. And then the commentator says, this is how God responds. God, when his service no longer appears a perfect freedom, and man promises himself something far better elsewhere, allows him to make the trial. And he shall discover, if need be by saddest proof, that to depart from God is not to throw off the yoke, but to exchange a light yoke for a heavy one, and one gracious master for a thousand imperious tyrants and lords. This younger son had excellence in his very home, and he chose to ignore it. He ends up feeding, feeding himself, or at least longing to feed himself, with the pods that the pigs were eating. This concept is that we basically were created in the image of God. Imago Dei, that Latin phrase. But we often choose to live like animals when we ignore excellence. Pastor Scott mentioned last week that some folks get the mistaken idea that when we leave this earth, we'll become angels or we'll be like the angels. But we know in Hebrews it says, actually, no, we were created just a little bit below the heavenly beings, the angels, not just a little bit above the animals. And yet we live like that. And some of us think, wow, okay, we're created below the heavenly beings, just a little bit below the angels. Do you know every person is created in the image of God. Every person has inherent worth and dignity in, in, in their creation, even before they become a follower of Christ, created just below the heavenly beings. When you become a follower of Christ, you now have the opportunity to leapfrog the angels, and in an eternal sense, you now become better than or higher than the angels. So this is excellence that's available to us and to this younger son, but for whatever reason, he's ignored it. So that's son number one. We're going to move a little quickly because I want to get to a couple other things here in just a second. So let's take a look at son number two. Beginning verse 17. When he came to his senses, still talking about the younger brother, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Son number two, excellence embraced. Okay, technically I understand. Son number one and son number two are the same person. They're that younger brother. But can you see the profound difference between the attitude of the son who went away from home in rebellion, ignoring excellence, and the son who, in verse 17, is coming to himself, coming to his senses. In many ways, it's like what we just discovered here in baptism. We witness people being buried into death and raised into life. Physically, they're the same young child. But symbolically, spiritually, something significant has happened that changes that young person forever. In fact, this is what I call the hinge point of the story. If anybody ever asks me, boy, you have some favorite passages of Scripture. i got a bunch of them, but I'll say Luke 15, 17, because that's the point in the story where this young man goes from a wandering lost soul in rebellion, like we read in the commentary here, to a young man who realizes he's not truly himself unless he's at home or on his way home. We are not truly ourselves unless we're on our way home or at home. And in verse 18, when this young man comes to his senses, he begins to recite and rehearse this passage of Scripture that we have here where he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice in verse 21, when he actually delivers that little speech, How long he rehearsed it, we don't know. How many times, we don't know. But when he actually delivers it to his father, look what his father does. He won't even let him finish. Make me like one of your hired men. What's he say? The father says to the servants, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring the sandals. The father won't think of his son acting any differently than as a son. Now, one thing that I've always wrestled with in this passage is I really, I like the details of story. I like to be able to think about it and and to really feel a part of the story. And sometimes I'm disappointed and frustrated and I was like, well, what all was this guy doing in that distant land? How long had he been gone? How far away was this distant land? Several years ago, as a pastor, I was called to go make a visit in a hospital with an elderly man. He wasn't a part of our church. He was a friend of someone in our church. They said, hey, Pastor Roy, would you go see Cliff? He's, you know, he's over in the hospital. And, and uh, I said, sure. And I went to see Cliff. And uh, we were talking about his life. And he was near the end of his life. And you have some pretty significant conversations when people get toward the end of their life. And uh, Cliff and I chatted for a while, and Cliff basically, he just broke down into tears, and he said, I've lived a terrible life. He said it all began back in June 6, 1944. We know it as D-Day. He was one of the invading soldiers. And he said, the things I did that day changed my life forever. He said, "I, I know there are good people in this world. Can you hear me? Is that better? Okay. 
Um, he said, I, I know there are good people in this world that God loves and that they love God and they serve him. And he said, and then there are people like me. He said, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't even a human being that day, the things I did. And he said, since then, I've pretty much just lived my own way and I've gone my own way and I'm, just, I'm far from God. And I remember sitting there thinking, What's, what could I tell Cliff to help him understand that he's not too far gone, that he does have hope? And I told him this story. And as I was telling this story, the Spirit of God spoke to me very clearly and said, Roy, the reason that you don't know how far this young man went in Scripture, how long he'd been gone or what he'd been done, is so that you can tell Cliff what really matters is none of those three things but the fact that the young man decided to go home. He came to his senses. And the story doesn't have the detail because it needs to be every person's story, not just the young man in Scripture. And if the details are there, we might say, oh, well, but I didn't do that bad of stuff, or I wasn't gone that long, or I didn't go that far from God. The bottom line is it doesn't matter how far you've gone, what you've done, or how long you've been gone. What matters is Verse 17, you come to your senses, you remember who you are, who you were created to be, and you go home. Cliff was a changed man when he embraced that concept. If only that were the end of the story. But as Paul Harvey says now for the rest of the story. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house. He heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But I had, we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found." This is the third son, excellence rejected. Though he had been home the entire time, he had never embraced excellence. And you'll see what betrays the heart are these two phrases. I've been slaving for you. I've been slaving for you, dad, never disobeying, living as a servant. Remember, the father wouldn't even let the younger son claim in his rehearsed speech, make me like one of your servants. And here the older brother, the one who stayed home, who'd been exposed to excellence, didn't go away, slaved for his father. And then the older brother won't even claim brotherhood with his returning brother. This son of yours. Even though the servant in the explanation says, your brother's come home. No. Father, it's this son of yours. He disowns him completely. Basically, 
Bottom line is, we can't live in harmony with God or His people unless we're part of the family. His residence was there the whole time, but His heart was not. We've talked about these connection groups starting up here in a couple of weeks, and there are going to be times where not in a life group, small group, in a home setting, not here in a larger worship service, but in something in between, you're going to be in a class with people and you're going to be learning things and you're going to be learning about other people. And, 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 and it's a great part of discipleship. And I was in a church a while back and uh, we, we called them discipleship classes. And uh, I, I was leading one of these classes, maybe 30, 40 people. And if you included their children, it was, you know, 60, 70 people. It's kind of like a small church, really, kind of a church within a church. And um, this class, we were studying this passage, and the, the folks in the class, at least half of them began to say, you know what, in the discussion, they said, you know what, we, we, don't, we think the older brother got a raw deal here. In fact, uh, we, we can kind of relate to this older brother. He's, he's been faithful all this time, and, you know, he didn't even have... In a, in a young goat for a party, and then dad gets this, you know, this, this other son back and throws a big party, makes a big deal out of it. We, we feel like the older brother got a bum rap here, kind of bum deal. And, and in fact, we think the father is probably not, not fair. And you know, I, I said to him, well, I said, now, let's make sure we understand something here. This is Jesus telling a story with an audience of tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, teachers of the law, and he's trying to make a point, and it's one of, one of a few times where Jesus tells a story and puts his father into the story as a main character. You understand this is God that he's talking about. And some of the folks in the room said, yeah, yeah I get that, but I still don't think it's fair. I don't think he's being fair. And what I found out as I got to know some of the folks making those statements was back in the 60s and 70s, they were folks who had said no to the cultural revolution of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. They'd been faithful. They'd been at youth group. They'd been serving and slaving and and didn't disobey. And then in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when some of these wayward classmates of theirs had come back into the church, had come to Christ as that younger brother, and the celebrations began, and baptism services were had, and all the attention was cast on these returning lost people, they didn't think that was right. And the name of the class was the New Life class. And I I remember wrestling how we could miss the point that Jesus so clearly makes. It's not that the older brother's a bad guy. It's not that these guys and gals in this class were bad people. It's they were people who had rejected the excellence of sonship that God had extended. And they slaved for him when they could have been children of his. Well, we don't want to just look at the children here. We don't want to just look at the two two sons, the three sons. We want to look at the father and the excellence that he models. So very very quickly, we'll kind of take a look at this. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a parent, one of the things that we try to do, we we know we can't be God-like in some ways when we parent, but we can learn from him and pictures like this in Scripture. So one of the things I like to do is think about as a father, 
I want to follow the model of my heavenly Father. The first thing I see is that in verses 11 through 13, when the younger son was doing what he was doing, the father allowed it. He didn't conform his son into a behavior set that made him a slave. He allowed him to basically disrespect and leave. Again, we could go into lots of detail about what all that meant, but the bottom line is, I think, what kind of patience, what kind of generosity does that display for our Heavenly Father to allow us to make choices that take us away from Him? Because if we can't make choices to take us away from Him, how can we make a choice to become His son or His daughter? In fact, as a parent, i got to tell you, in the early days, I sought to conform my children through pressure, and I'm not proud of that. When I became more mature as a father, I allowed for the general modeling of life that we had in our home to transform people through an impressive way, not to impress, to you know, dress to impress, but an impression over time. And so God the Father allows this son, number one, to disrespect and leave. And that's hard for us as parents because we feel like we're not doing our job, but we should learn from this lesson. Second, he anticipated son number two's return. He anticipated the younger son going away and coming back. We know that because in verse 20, it says that he saw him a long way off. He was looking for him. He was waiting for him. He was ready to extend his grace to him because he, he believed that he would come back and he believed that he would come back a different person. He expresses this compassionate, unconditional love. And it's not just sympathy, it's empathetic, it's action-oriented, he runs to him, he grabs a hold of him, embraces him, welcomes him fully, when the son, you know, is probably looking like who knows what and smelling like who knows what. The father is reckless in his love. He also assaults son number two's confusion. When son number two begins to express, hey, I, I make me like a servant. I'm not worthy to be called your son. The, the father will not tolerate that. In fact, if we had time, we'd go into the detail of what that robe meant, what the ring meant, and what the sandals meant. The bottom line for us today is to remember that all of these were visible symbols that could remind the son, if he ever forgot who he is, whose he is, what family he belongs to. He could look down and see and feel that robe, look to that ring and notice the sandals on his feet. Again, just like baptism, a physical, outward, visible symbol of something happening beautifully and wonderfully internally. The Father is providing what we like to call significant symbols of sonship for his wayward son come home. Last Son number three, the older brother, he answers his accusations. Verses 28 and following, the father, unlike with the younger son, when the younger son goes away, the father waits. Here, the older son's outside the party. The father is, he is asserting himself. He went out. He went out to get him. He pleads with him. He didn't have to plead with him. He could have ordered him. Remember, the older son is living as a slave. 
He could have mastered him. He could have made him do what he was supposed to do. I mentioned in the first service this morning, it's kind of like taking your children to Disney World. They say it's the world's largest child abuse center because parents take their kids there. They say, we've spent hundreds of dollars on this. You will ride that ride and you will enjoy it. The father could have expressed that kind of authority, but he pleaded, almost taking a one-down position and, and, and pleading with his son. And lastly, his language. He calls him, my son. Remember, this older brother has said, I've been slaving for you. He said, my son, remember who you are. And then he doesn't allow him to just talk about that son of yours. He says, the brother of yours was lost. He's found. He was dead. He's alive. And then he he doesn't say, I misread it earlier. I had to celebrate. No, we had to celebrate. We're the family. So... He's answering these accusations. The last little thing I want to mention today, and sometimes this is just something that maybe it happens just in the academic world, but when I was a faculty member in in a Bible college, folks would sometimes get excellence with perfection confused. So I just want to mention a couple things here. I'd have students sometimes come up to me and they'd say, Ah, oh, man, I'm getting a B in your class, and, and I want to be perfect. I need an A, and, you know, the GPA is important. And, and after all, if you're doing Bible stuff, if you get a B, that's less than perfect, less than excellent. Now I'm not even a good Christian. I mean, people really tried to lay a guilt trip on me as a faculty member, but, you know, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. So they'd say, be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. i say, okay, let's remember the context. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Now, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you read that text, and you're not talking about performance. It's not about a good performance I can accomplish, but about what God-empowered love I can express. So don't think excellence means perfection. Oh, Pastor Roy, you're talking about being perfect. I can't do it. Right, you can't. But you can live a life of God-empowered love and be perfect in that sense. Other times folks would say to me, well, what about Philippians 4? If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What do we do in this culture? We praise excellence. And how do we define excellence? Performance. Context. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Putting it in context now, we see actually what we're talking about is not the work of our hands, but about the mindset and attitude of our heart. So can I be excellent in that sense without being a good performer? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things I love to do in classes was the students and I, we came up with definition and we defined perfection and perfectionism. And this is how we decided to, to kind of deal with this issue. We said perfection is an internally motivated excellence that is God-honoring. 
It's not about me, it's about Him, and it comes from inside because the Spirit of God lives in me. Perfectionism, on the other hand, externally dictated performance or externally dictated excellence that glorifies me. If I'm a gymnast, I get a 10. I'm perfect. Look at me. That's perfectionism. So that was kind of how the students and I worked on that, so I don't know if that'll help you. But let me just give you a real quick little story uh, that maybe, maybe will make the point. And uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's something I'm going to read, and I don't like to read things a whole lot, but it's so well told, so bear with me for just a couple minutes. So it says this, A wealthy man and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from Picasso to Raphael. They would often sit together and admire the great works of art. When the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went to war. He was very courageous and died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, just before Christmas, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. He often talked about you and your love for art. The young man held out his package. I I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package. It was a portrait of his son painted by this young soldier. The father stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes that his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. Oh, no, sir, I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantle. Every time visitors came to his home, he took them to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great, perfect works of art that he had collected. The man died a few months later. There was to be a great auction of his paintings. Many influential people gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their collection. On the platform sat the painting of the sun. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. We will start the bidding for this picture of the sun. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, We want to see the famous painting. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted, Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? $100, $200. Another voice shouted angrily, We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still the auctioneer continued, The sun, the sun, who'll take the sun? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the man and his son. I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, it was all he could afford. We have $10. Who will bid 20 Give it to him for 10 Let's see the masters. 10 is the bid. Who will bid 20 Finally, a voice came from the very back. Um, sorry, the crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer pounded the gavel, going once, twice, sold for $10. 
A man sitting on the second row shouted, Now let's get on with the collection. The auctioneer laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, the auction is over. What about the paintings? I'm sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including the paintings. The man who took the sun gets everything. Father, I, I can almost hear in my mind right now you imploring us, the Son, the Son, who will take the Son? And Father, it has not only the implication of someone turning from death to life, coming to their senses, coming home, that's a beautiful, brilliant thing. And for anybody here this morning who does not have a relationship with you as Father, who doesn't know you as a son because they've never come to a saving relationship with you, I pray that that person, those people, will take the son. But the other implication, of course, for our message this morning, in that great story that Jesus told, the son... Once we get the Son, we now live as sons and daughters. We now live as co-inheritors. When we get the Son, we get everything. And so, Father, for any of the folks here this morning who may have been living faithfully, doing the right things, serving, obeying, but doing so under compulsion of slavery. Not bond servant, not choosing to be a slave, but Father, feeling like a slave because they had to be. I pray, Father, for any of those folks that they would find freedom, that they would find uh, themselves in the family. Because at the end of the day, we really, really only have life when we're part of the family. And we really only can be who we were truly created to be when we come to ourselves and live at home as sons and daughters. So Father, thanks for the story that Jesus told. Thanks for this story that maybe helps us understand it's not about perfection, but it's about embracing excellence. We thank you in the name of the Son. Amen.